Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to open Your Scriptures today, to turn to the immortal words of life, and find there the treasures hidden from ages past for us, Lord, and our lives today. We thank You that Your Word will never return void, but will always accomplish every last bit that You intend it to throughout all ages, Lord Jesus, and into the future, as many years as You tarry on this earth, and, and until all things are fulfilled according to Your perfect, predestined, and foreordained plan. I thank You, Lord, that Your Word is effective and powerful for smashing the idols in a culture and in our own lives, returning us, Lord, in worship and fear to the one true God. I thank You that Your Word is beautiful and profound. And as we read it, Lord, and understand it more and more, and all of its genius and luster, we find that You have, God, given it such a beautiful character as to reflect Your own nature to us. We thank You that in Your Word You have condescended. You have whispered in words that we can understand. Lord, the God who is incomprehensible in His beauty and glory and so beyond our comprehension, Lord, has made Himself known in His sovereignty to lowly creatures such as us and given us the opportunity to peek into the window of revelation and see through it, through the pages of Your Scripture, the glorious truth of our God. I thank You, Lord, for these moments. I pray that they would be fruitful to bring You more glory as Your people apply Your Scriptures beyond this place. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to open up His Holy Scriptures today. I would encourage you to do so by turning with me to Psalm 65. And let us consider these words of David, this worship song, jam-packed full of truth. Today's message is entitled, Praiseworthy Casebook. And this title refers to several things we'll cover in introduction in a moment. Suffice it to say that after verse 1, the rest of the chapter, verses 2, all the way through 13, compile reason after reason and give example after example of why our Lord is worthy of what we're doing this morning, even today, gathering together to lift up His holy name, to enthrone our God on the praises of us, His people, so that He might be glorified and declared majestic and powerful and praiseworthy. And so we have many reasons to do this in Scripture, and Psalm 65 gives us a catalog of them. Stand with me, if you would, this morning, out of reverence and fear for the Lord, out of respect for His Holy Word, and let us read together, follow me as I read God's Word, Psalm 65 under this title, To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David, a song. Verse 1 reads, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Verse 5, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth 
and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain and so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 65 could be considered, I submit to you this morning, a case book. A collection, that is, or catalog, a record illustrating specific instances used for reference and instruction. And this idea of a casebook normally refers or is utilized in fields of study and disciplines such as medicine or law. A casebook is a compilation of examples or experiences, particular instances that help you understand or adjudicate or practice, execute a particular discipline all the more because of this record of instruction. So in medicine, for instance, you would have a collection of cases where a similar disease would affect people in different ways and give you a pattern of what to expect and how to diagnose your next patient more faithfully and fully, completely and comprehensively as to prescribe a cure for him. In a similar way, when it comes to law adjudicating cases, you might keep a record in a case book of prior situations where crimes of a similar or circumstances of a similar bent have uh, been uh, uh, rightly divided or the word of the, or the law has been applied to them in particular cases. And you can look at this record to find wisdom on how to deal with one that faces you at any particular moment. In a similar way, Psalm 65 might be referred to as a casebook for worship. Particular instances, a catalog, a collection, a record book showing specific instances used for reference and instruction on why God is praiseworthy and what are glorious thoughts and meditations that ought to move His people, considering His faithfulness to them, to worship, awe, fear, reverence, to publish His glory and worship and praise in all of life. And in, and in their habits, their decisions, their proclamation, and their presentation of the Lord to the world. And in corporate worship, also the exaltation of the Lord with each other. In this sense, Psalm 65 serves as something as a casebook for worship. Verse 1 is a proclamation. Listen, praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall all vows be performed. But then the following verses, verses 2 through 13, of verse 1 is a proclamation, 2 through 13, are a documentation, 
reinforcing and justifying this statement. Verse 2, O you who, here's prayer to all, uh, to you all flesh, or shall all flesh come when iniquities prevail against me? You atone for trans- transgressions, and so on. Two through three document, reinforce, and justify this statement. The statement that praise is due, all praise and glory is due to God in Zion. To Him shall vows be performed. The casebook of praiseworthy acts of God could be infin- infinite in content. In fact, we know this to be true because our God is infinitely praiseworthy. However, for the purposes of this song, David selects particular displays of the glory of God from a few major categories of divine intervention, including examples from both redemption and creation. These two aspects of the work of God correspond to categories of revelation that we call in theology special and general. Special revelation, general revelation. General revelation, of course, is that which can be known of God, that of His glory which is on display in His created order, in the things that we see in the material realm, in that which publishes His glory, His creative power, His majesty, His great beauty all through the cosmos, from the furthest stars and reaches of space, the most distant galaxies, to the microbiology of a complicated life system that is available for us to view through microscopes and in laboratories. That would be general revelation. Special revelation, however, is more specific to the nature and character of God, especially as it relates to the heart and condition of man. And this is the plan of salvation that is only revealed and therefore can only be known in God's direct self-disclosure through His Word. And so in all of Scripture, we have God's special revelation. In all of creation, we have His general revelation. God has made Himself known in the Scriptures and through the universe of His creation. The psalmist poetically calls our attention to the majesty of God, evident in His manifold exploits. Psalm 65 reminds the believer of the extent of praise-inspiring realities that surround us and that transform us. Those that we experience on the heart, on the interior, and those that we experience through our observation all around us in this world that we are so privileged to live in as God has blessed it with evidence of His glory. Let us consider this in a little more specificity and organized detail under this heading. Psalm 65 could be a compendium of praiseworthy acts of God. So let us consider a compendium or a collection, a casebook of praiseworthy acts of God. And let us consider Psalm 65 in three categories. This compendium could fall under three points or further divisions this morning. Number one, salvation. How is God worthy of praise in His acts of salvation? Redemption and atonement for mankind in his sin. The reunion of fallen and sinful man to communion once again, fellowship and favor with his God. Secondly, awesome deeds. The exploits of the Lord through history and creation that are visible for all with eyes to see and undeniable for every human that has ever been born. 
Number three, provisional bounty. The psalmist closes his song and his ode to the Lord and his compendium of the praiseworthy acts of God by drawing our attention to the bountiful provisions that God causes to spring forth from fertile fields, that He waters with the rains of heaven, that overflow with signs of His kindness and favor to His people as their plates are full at dinner time. <coughs> and so for these reasons, our God is worthy of praise. Let us consider specifically salvation this morning. Reading again verses 1 through 4 in Psalm 65. Again, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayers, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. To dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Under salvation, it is of particular note and of glorious interest to those who are paying close attention to the genius and power, the authority and timelessness of Scripture, that the psalmist identifies the Lord, Elohim, God in Zion, as particular, specific, yet not parochial. What do I mean by this? Well, during the time that the psalmist David here was writing, there were pagans who had ideas of regional or parochial gods. And this was commonplace at the time, you know, Baal was Lord, uh, he was seen or the conception of this idol as having a particular dominion, a realm, and control over this particular region. A people would be identified by a god. So the Assyrians would worship this god, you know, the, uh, in the Mesopotamian region uh, there was a handful of them, a pantheon. And uh, the tribalistic peoples would often distinguish themselves by the gods that they worshipped. The Asterith and, and uh, the Baals and the Dagons and so on and so forth. Well, these gods, or this uh, notion of gods, extended uh, further into the ancient world. You think of the pantheon of Rome. Not only were certain gods particular to certain peoples and regions, but certain gods were particular to certain aspects of life. So, you know, this god would be the god of war. This god would be the god of fertility. This god would be the god of, uh, you know, what, whatever you might think of or designate. These are all parochial designations. Gods in our own image. Gods that are limited to space and time and certain aspects and applications such as we are. These are not gods at all. These are false figments of man's fallen, sinful, depraved, vain imagination. They are ridiculous. Now, if you listen to the professors of you know, the history of religions or, and whatnot, religions of the world, speak these days, they are often also uh, misguided in their notions. Well, they recognize what I just told you, that the pagan world often had parochial notions of God, you know, localized conceptions limited to their tribe and space and time and aspect of life, their own imagination. They will go further to say, and this is false, that all religions were this way. 
And in fact, through time, they developed and became more sophisticated. So you started with polytheism or pantheism. You move uh, more through, through the uh, annals of time, and you might find monotheistic ideas, so on and so forth. Well, this is not the case at all. There's no developmental hypothesis that you could apply to the religion of David, for instance, Although he's surrounded by all these parochial and pagan notions of God, what does he say? In ancient times, millennia ago, centuries and centuries before modern professors ever had the idea of evolution, Darwinism applied to religion and worldview, he said that his God is one that is viewed, that dwells, uh, that is available to appreciate for those who dwell at the ends of the earth, and they stand in awe at his signs. He says in verse 2, to you, or of him, that he hears prayer, and to him all flesh shall come. To you shall all flesh come. He says in verse 5 that by his awesome deeds, he answers us, but not just a parochial us, not just an ethnically specific us, But instead, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas terminates and rests on Elohim, God in Zion. He is not exclusively the God of the ethnic Jew or specifically uh, limited to the region of Israel. But instead, he is approached by all men, but he is approached by all men, or or he is approached by anyone who follows the exclusive means that he has ordained. And in this way, he is particular. So in other words, although God is not limited to ethnic group or region, he does in fact exclusively ordain a particular means whereby he can be known. And in this way, he is not parochial, but he is particular. He is the God in Zion. What does this mean? Well, Zion, yes, is a geographical region, but it is typological. It symbolizes the specificity of worship that God requires. And the only way to approach Him and find favor and communion and fellowship with Him. Zion, of course, was the hill or the region, the elevated area upon which the temple of the Lord was eventually built. But Zion has a rich historical pedigree. If you go back and look in the scriptures, reminds you this last year we covered in a sermon or two the story of David where he had violated as a representative of the people the law of God. He had taken a census that the Lord was displeased with and God gave David three options of judgment. The one that he chose began to be so devastating to, him, to the people, to his realm, that it had killed tens of thousands of people by pestilence. And so for his sin, David is watching his nation die, literally. David cries out in repentance and anguish, seeking reprieve and mercy from God. He cries out in repentance, and he goes to a particular place. He goes to the field of Ornan, a man who, at the edge of the devastation, had a threshing floor and so on. David, with his own money, purchased this area 
and proceeded to sacrifice, acting even in a priestly and mediating matter and interceding for the people on behalf of his sin and theirs, he offered these sacrifices. The Lord was pleased to uh, stay his judgment and the angel of the Lord sheathed his sword and the pestilence was stopped at this place, the field of Ornan. Just a chapter over, as you read the account in the Old Testament, you find that this very location became the foundation stones for the temple itself. Why? Because here, David experienced the mediating power of God when a substitute sacrifice was provided to atone for the sin, his sin, and for the plight of the people. He interceded and God intervened. This is a picture of the specificity of approaching God in worship. He is the God, He is the only one for anyone who will approach Him through Zion. That is, through His substitute sacrifice and His particular way to make atonement for sinners such that they might be reunited having their sins satisfied and paid for in the blood, ultimately, of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb, so that through Zion we may worship Him. It says, of course, in the New Testament, that this very aspect is the fulfillment of what the location of the Temple Mount represented. That is to say, no longer do we need to worship in a particular geographical place because Christ has come. And now that Christ has come, the particularity of the Lord and His worship is defined by Christ alone. It is through Christ, our mediator, our high priest, and our sacrifice that we can approach the Lord. He is particular. He is not parochial. This under the heading of salvation, but there is a further expounding that David moves on to declare in verse 2 and 3, reading again, he says, O you who hears prayers, to you shall all flesh come. Listen, verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Here we have the theme of atonement expounded. But not just atonement that, couldn't be, that can be secured by anyone, but sovereign atonement. Atonement that is secured by the Lord, God and Zion Himself. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for my transgressions. Not the priest that God had ordained symbolically to represent this atonement through the animal sacrifices of the people. Not the carefully prescribed Levitical order with all the proper vestments and all the ceremonial law perfectly, uh, you know, and, and carefully observed in tabernacle worship. No, these ultimately were not the cause. They were not the cause of the atonement. They were to be obediently carried out in the Old Testament order during that administration of the covenant, but they themselves could not atone for sin. The blood of bulls and goats will not satisfy God in Zion. Instead, the ultimate cause, the ultimate uh, agent of atonement is God Himself. God who stepped into flesh, became a man, interceded for His people as their high priest and their sacrifice. The, the atonement 
that truly cleanses us from sin, that truly covers us, is entirely the Lord's atonement. It is not something that we can achieve or pursue or attain or add anything to, not one iota of works. Any attempt is counted as debt, more sin that is, against us. But when iniquities prevail against us, and they prevail against all of us, that is to say, when sin conquers us and holds us captive, surrounds us, defeats us, and keeps us bound in chains, helpless, you, speaking of the Lord, atones for our transgressions. We cannot set ourselves free from the captivity of sin. We cannot negotiate with our captor and come up with a hostage price that will set us free. It is impossible. Though we are prevailed against in our sinfulness, yet God has set us free. He has atoned for our transgressions. And brothers and sisters in Christ, because of this, He is worthy of praise. This adds reason upon reason in the compendium of praiseworthy acts of God, in the casebook of His glory to offer Him praise. Praise is due to God in Zion. Why? Because He has provided atonement for our transgressions. The reality of sin and its pervasive effects was fully acknowledged by the psalmist king. Think of it, David in Psalm 51, which we sang earlier today, this morning, we, we celebrated and, or, or in, and uh, what David celebrated when he commemorated that though his sin was deep and great and horrific in the sight of the Lord, that when he came to him broken, seeking, relying only on his mercy for atonement and salvation, that God provided that indeed. David himself, a murderer, had placed Uriah at the forefront of the battle. Why? So that he could pursue his ends as an adulterer and thief and steal his wife and make him, her, his own, and so on. David's crimes were great against the Lord. But also think of this. Think of David's kingly position. David did not use and abuse his authority to justify himself in his sin, though he did take advantage of his position for a time. In his repentance, he was broken and humble before the Lord in spite of the fact that he was the chief magistrate of Israel. Such is not often the case. Most men seek positions of influence, prominence, and authority exactly to justify themselves for the precise reason that they figure if they can make the law be a law unto themselves, then they don't have to conform to any authority over them. They can make their own rules, do their own thing, and the idea of answering to a higher authority for their brokenness, for their sinfulness, for their rebellion, and for their insubordination to a God, a Lord, an authority over them becomes a non-factor. Such was not the case with David. He understood that even he, though king and privileged and enjoying the great bounty of the nation and this particular place of influence that iniquities had prevailed against him. And he needed atonement regardless of the position that he enjoyed in this life. He didn't thereby, by his kingship, attempt to justify himself by abusing his position. Instead, he recognized that there was a king over him. And to this one, praise was due. And through Zion alone, his prescribed means 
could he be uh, in good stead and favor with him. And so to him vows must be performed. He is the one ultimately that answered for David's actions and David's commitments. David might seek the vows of the people, you know, in allegiance to him. But he understood that those were meaningless and indeed a distraction and just more of the iniquity that would prevail against him if it gave him an idea that he himself did not have to answer to a sovereign over him. To his God in Zion, David's vows must be performed. And so we find in the particularity of the worship of the Lord and the fact that he is not parochial, but his, the extent of his realm and the access to his glory is, uh, the sa- or is widespread. And also the fact that is that all men or all peoples can approach the Lord, but they approach only on his terms. And also the fact that atonement is sovereignly provided. For these reasons, our God is worthy of praise. And thirdly, under this category of salvation, let us consider a little more fully sovereign grace. David expounds on the particularity of atonement by saying in verse 4, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Again, David exalts the Lord in his sovereignty in salvation. Now this is some sweet and condensed theology, is it not? This is compressed truth. This is the Apostle Paul in a nutshell. If you move to the apostolic interpretation and application of the gospel in the book of Romans, for instance, you find a methodic and carefully reasoned and glorious revelation of the nature and character and the consistency and logic of the gospel in Paul's words. And when he gets to chapter 9, he declares the sovereignty of God in no uncertain terms, that certain vessels are prepared for the Lord because He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. And He will harden whom He will harden. And it is His just prerogative to use the hardened heart of Pharaoh to His advantage, creating a foil so that he may display his great wonders. And it is God's sovereign prerogative that he would bring judgment upon those who are worthy as he allows them, permits them to continue in their act of rebellion against him. But furthermore, and praise the Lord, it is his sovereign prerogative to reach into the cesspool of sinful humanity and to adopt for himself and elect who are unworthy, who have nothing to offer, nothing to distinguish themselves from their sinful neighbors, except that God and the counsel, the secret counsel of his own will has set his affections upon them. And nothing of them, and for no reason of themselves, but because of the glory of his grace that he wants to publish and manifest through the salvation of his people, he blesses some and chooses them, brings them near to dwell in his courts, and they shall be satisfied with the goodness of his house and the holiness of his temple. 
having their eyes that were blind now open to see their own sinfulness and the beauty of their Savior, being estranged, lonely, and captive to the fear of death without God in this, in this world, now suddenly gathering in the holiness and the safety, the assurance and the security and salvation represented by His temple. Dwelling in His courts, that is to say, sharing the habitation of the Almighty. On His property, in His presence, they dwell. God does this by a sovereign touch of His hand alone. By the resurrecting power of His Word that speaks in a spiritual way to us, as He demonstrated physically, by declaring in the gospel, Lazarus come forth, and that which had been dead for days obeys the voice of God and receives regeneration, newness of life. Spurgeon says of this verse, verse 4 in Psalm 65, that it, is, that it comprehends both election, effectual calling, access, acceptance, sonship, adoption, final perseverance, and satisfaction. He says, this verse is a body of divinity in miniature. Think of it, election, effectual calling, access, acceptance, sonship, adoption, final perseverance, satisfaction, all in the Old Testament. All in one verse in Psalm 65, 4. Again, the fingerprints of God's divine authorship, the Holy Spirit inspiration of His Holy Word are evident if we have eyes to see. And saints, for the electing grace of our God, for the sonship that we enjoy in Him, for the adoption of sons that we have experienced if you are a believer in Christ today, for the perseverance of the Spirit of God working through you, evidencing salvation and giving you faith to endure trial, and the satisfaction of sin achieved and His sovereign atonement in the effectual calling that you have experienced as He brought you from the miry clay of the death of sin. For these reasons, our God is worthy of praise. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, because you have set your affections upon us in salvation. The compendium of praiseworthy acts of God includes every aspect of His redemption applied to us through the atonement of Jesus Christ in the salvation of man's souls from the depravity of sin. Secondly, this morning, major heading, the compendium of praiseworthy acts of God includes His awesome deeds. Verse 5 through 8, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God, of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. He says, the one, verse 6, by his, who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their ways, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. There is a personal yet not individualistic appreciation of the dominion of God that we experience in salvation. That is 
to say His awesome deeds range from what can be personally experienced in the quiet moments of prayerful meditation where God reveals to us the reality of His salvation. It goes from this all the way to the majesty of the Lord revealed in His cosmos when we look into space and cannot count the stars. In spite of our technology that we think is so advanced that reaches through the telescopic, telescopic eye of various instruments into the furthest reaches of space, and in spite of the computer technology that we have developed to maximize and multiply exponentially our ability to keep track of things, still it appears, as far as we know, that the stars might as well be infinite because the more we count, the more we discover. So from the very personal to the very grand uh, expanse of space, we see the praiseworthy acts of God demonstrated in His awesome deeds. His awesome deeds are evident in salvation as we've already declared. He answers us with righteousness. He gives us as clothing. He gives us to cover our own sins and imputes to us by the power of Christ's own law-keeping. He gives us new standing and justification before Him. He answers us with His righteousness. He is the God, after all, of our salvation. He is, by this means, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas for reconciliation with Himself. He is the hope of salvation for all mankind. And His awesome deeds through the Great Commission will be and are being declared to the furthest reaches of this earth. Think about the praiseworthy acts of God that are echoed all through Scripture. And let me touch on one cross-reference that celebrates these themes and even more specificity and detail as John's revelation in Revelation 15 gives us opportunity to see beyond what is often the restricting forces of this realm into one where worship springs forth unfettered. And this is what we find, John records in verse 2 of his Revelation chapter 15, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here we have those who realize by the mighty works of God that He is praiseworthy, that God in Zion is the one to whom praises you and to whom vows shall be performed. And they are echoing, therefore, contemplating the same themes, the praises that David laid out in Psalm 65 before the throne of God, those who are spoken of in symbolic and prophetic form and revelation, the saints of the Lord who have experienced his defeat of their enemies are worshiping Him by announcing and proclaiming His awesome deeds that have defeated their mortal enemies. 
They are celebrating the fact that Christ is not parochial, but indeed, He has demonstrated His glory to all the nations. And so we see all through Scripture the theme of His glorious power, awesome deeds, fulfilled as Scripture prophesies, not just to one individual, a person here or there, but personally realized by a people gathered from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Personal dominion realized through salvation all over the globe is one of God's awesome deeds, a praiseworthy act in the compendium and casebook of His wor- uh, of worship that we find in Psalm 65. Secondly, we find demonstrated in this portion of our text, elemental dominion. Elemental means having power of a force of nature. Or I would, I would expand that to say, having power over the forces of nature. Verse 7, who stills, speaking of the Lord, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, verse 7, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. This is the elemental dominion of our God. Briefly, in Scripture, we find the roaring of the seas, the tumult of these chaotic so-called forces of nature are representative of something. You see here an identity or an association of the tumult of the peoples with the roaring of the waves, and this is common in Scripture. It is to say the roaring sea, the unruly forces of nature, that which man cannot control, is representative in the poetry of the ancient world of any kind of calamity. Uh, Nations rising up spontaneously, it would almost seem, warring against one another. A famine sweeping across the land, a cloud of locusts eating all the crops and ruining the harvest for that year. Uh, A great flood that might arise uh, from the plains of a river and wash away a farmer's fortunes. These kinds of things, calamities that befall us in this world of geological events that we call uh, even today acts of God. We recognize are beyond any mere human's control. Think of it even today. In spite of our technology and the cities that we build and all the contingency plans that we have in place and emergency services, we can have a tsunami that is moved by an earthquake, almost undetected on the ocean floor, or at least escapes our instruments so that we don't have time to evacuate a city And a wall of watery destruction can wipe away thousands in a moment in the most developed regions of this globe. Yet today we realize that the tumult of the seas can sink our greatest ships, can be unpredictable, and in spite of our computer models prove us fools once again as we declare some kind of authority over nature and are proven to be captive by it over and over again. But there is one who has elemental dominion, There is one who controls not just the seas that we uh, cross the Pacific, the Atlantic, and so on, but in in addition controls the unruly forces of calamity that man experiences in this entire world. Now, Psalm 65 is prophetic. There is one who stills the roaring of seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumults of the peoples. Who is he? Well, listen, in Matthew 8, we find who he is. And when he got into the boat, verse 23, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. He, of course, in this 
text is Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew as we see the record of His elemental dominion about to be revealed to His disciples. Verse 25, They went and woke Him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? To which I would add, Psalm 65 answers the question. What sort of man is this who calmed the seas, stood up in the boat with the disciples, and declared dominion over the uncontrollable forces of nature so far as we are concerned? He is the one who hears prayer. He is the one to whom all flesh Come through His means of salvation where He sovereignly atones for their transgressions. He is the one in whom we are blessed if He, if the Father through Him chooses us and draws us near. He is the one who by His awesome deeds answers us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The one who stills the storm is the one who provides atonement. The one who demonstrates His dominion Over the forces of nature, the voice over the waters, the God of glory who thunders. When you see Him, you know that the Messiah has come. He has authority over every calamity. He has authority over the unruly forces of nature and man. And most of all, most important for our eternal salvation and souls, He has authority over death, the devil, and even our sin, and has satisfied the judgment that it deserved in offering Himself on the cross. Again, Jesus reveals in the Gospel of Matthew His elemental authority. As He not only calms the storm as we see Him in Matthew chapter 8, but demonstrates His sovereignty and His dominion and His divinity by walking across the surface of the waters. I was discussing with my children last night some of the meaning of these verses. And my oldest son said to me that when Jesus walked on the waters, it was like the conqueror, the king who places his foot on the neck of his enemies and declares authority and power over him and says, I have conquered you. I am the sovereign and you must submit. That is exactly right. This is pictured as Christ. But when the disciples, notice in verse 24, Matthew 14, saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And we see what Jesus does as He reveals Himself. Peter walks in the water to Him. Christ saves Him. In the end, those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They received, did they not, in part an answer to their question. Who is this who even the winds and the seas obey Him? He is the one worthy of praise. To Him praise is due. He is God in Zion. He is the Sovereign. Now of these awesome deeds, we must recognize in Scripture that they are universal. These awesome deeds are demonstrated to all and through all. Of Him and to Him and through Him are all things. It's not just a handful of twelve who experience Christ and His sovereign divinity. But instead, it is all who open the Scriptures who realize through the publication of this work, His special revelation, that He controls the winds and the seas. 
It is all, in fact, even if they do not have these words before them in book form, who realize his awesome deeds as they awake to his sunrise, as they uh, lay their head on the pillow and realize that he has set, or under the uh, bodies, celestial bodies that he has set to guide the night, the moon, and the stars which surround them. These are the evidences of the awesome deeds that are not just personal, it's not just elemental, but they are universally manifest throughout all creation. Verse 8, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. The Lord our God, God in Zion, is praiseworthy because He has demonstrated Himself for every, through all ages and into eternity and for all men and for all regions and all the material realm that gives Him glory. He has commanded praise from all the peoples, distance and diversity notwithstanding. No matter their background, no matter their culture, no matter the furthest corners and reaches of this earth in which they make their dwelling, God's awesome deeds are apparent. They are apparent in the morning and the evening that He has sovereignly ordained to greet them with each day that closes and each morning that opens. In spite of the distance and diversity that we see among the peoples of this earth, God commands praise from them all. And commanding praise indeed from all the cosmos, morning and evening, the trees of the field clap their hands in worship to the Lord. The stars shine because they are evidencing, giving glory to God. Three times it is, uh, it, it's referred to in this uh, chapter that elements of nature, aspects of the created realm, shout for joy, referring to morning and evening here in this verse. But later, the hills themselves gird, or the hills gird themselves with joy. And verse 12, the valleys deck themselves in grain, shout and sing together for joy. What is pictured here? Well, what is pictured here is that all creation itself gives glory to the Lord, joins in the crescendo and symphony of worship to His holy name. And that praise is offered to the Lord not just from the throats of redeemed vessels, but from the shining of the celestial bodies in the night sky. And from the photosynthesis process of sunlight striking the leaves of the tree and then turning uh, them green with luscious spring life and satisfying with the process of the elements uh, in the soil, sap, to bring life and fruit to their limbs. This is an expression of joyous praise to the Lord. The compendium of praiseworthy works and the evidences of God's glory include nature itself. This moves us to our third major category, provisional bounty. Even the seasonal ecosystems praise the Lord. Listen, He visits the earth and waters it, verse 9. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. Says verse 11, you crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. We see here in miniature form, in summary form, complete ecosystems which supply life and bounty, fruit and food 
for the peoples of the earth. It is because the Lord visits the earth, waters it, greatly enriches it. It's because He settles its ridges with with the showers from heaven that He provides thereby through this means grain. He waters and blesses with the watering can of the heavens that break forth in nutritious, uh, life-giving irrigation for the crops of the earth. He causes them to spring forth and to crown the year with a bountiful harvest. We have a brief mention, an interesting one in verse 11, that his wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The picture here is a little ambiguous in the original language, at least in my study. I wasn't quite able to track down perhaps all the nuances, but perhaps we can say this much. Most kings leave a trail, a wake of influence in their path. Most Great uh, men in history, or at least so-called, like let's say Alexander the Great. There we ascribe to him uh, this kind of designation of a highly central, historical, influential figure. What did his wagons, wagon tracks abound with, as it were? Following his chariot, what did he leave in its wake? Well, he conquered the known world, did he not? He subdued peoples. He swung a bloody sword this way and that. He organized men to fight against men in order to acquire lands that certain men owned that he wanted for other reasons. And over and again we see in the record of history that those who compete with the Lord or at least attempt to prove themselves to be wicked and evil men, tyrants who take authority for themselves and care little for anything except for their own pride. And millions can die in the wake of their wagon tracks. Their chariot wheels are strewn with the blood of their enemies indiscriminately, and they overflow with carnage and upheaval and great conflict and anxiety. And oftentimes what they build is destroyed in the very next generation. Not so with our Lord. The praiseworthy casebook of the great exploits of our God, the compendium of His praiseworthy glory, includes within it this note, that his wagon tracks, his chariot wheels overflow with abundance. That is, the wake of God's influence in this world is measured in part by its bounty. When the earth overflows graciously, when God sends rain on the just and the unjust, when the coffers are full, when the barns have plenty, when there's food on your table and you begin your meal by blessing and thanking the Lord for His provision, you can remember the testimony of Psalm 65, that His wagon tracks overflow with bounty. We see lavish supply celebrated in Psalm 65. David is aware that man is undeserving of any sustenance whatsoever, yet God in His kindness causes more than enough to flow into the barns of especially His covenant covenantally faithful. But indeed, all men who are alive today owe their longevity, they owe their vitality to the grace of God evident in supplying them food for their belly and drink for their mouth and giving them the necessary nutrition to sustain their life. This lavish supply was evident all through Scripture in particular examples that no doubt David has in mind. If the fields of Egypt could not produce more than enough Then when the seven years of prophesied famine came, they would not have been able, Joseph, however wise and frugal he may have been, would not have been able 
to organize and administrate feeding the known world from the storehouses of Egypt. It was because the lavish supply of the years that preceded the famine there that he was able as an agent of God's grace to save even the family that contained the seed of the Messiah. When they relocated in their emergency and received the life-giving food that the barns of plenty boasted in Egypt. And so God provided for His people and preserved His will through history by lavish supply. We see this also in God's supply that would cover the sabbatical year. You see every seven years according to the law and the old covenant, the people of God were to let their land rest. They had to rely on the lavish supply, the bounty, the overflowing wagon tracks of their God and faith in those six years to give them enough to last that seventh. And he did so. When they were faithful, so was he. And according to that relationship, he demonstrated his glory in practical and provisional ways by giving them food that would sustain them in the sabbatical year. Thus, through the ecosystems of nature and through the lavish supply of our God, the provisional bounty that supplies man's needs, even materially speaking, our testimony of the praise were the acts of God. If there is food on your table tonight, saints, if there is opportunity for you to wake up to a breakfast, to the smell of breakfast on the stove, this is because praise is due to God in Zion. For those reasons, you should perform your vows. For those reasons, you should offer your prayers and your worship of thanks unto Him. Finally, this morning, under provisional bounty, we have examples of natural praise, if you will. Three references to joy that I mentioned before were pastures, hills, meadows, and valleys clothe and gird and deck themselves with fruitfulness as praise unto their Creator. These are examples of the praiseworthy acts of God, evident in nature itself. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. Verse 13, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. When you look at a pasture, a field, a wilderness, when you look at an ecosystem, a rainstorm, when you look at a field, a valley, a decked with grain or livestock, you ought to praise the Lord. One of the great tragedies of the worldview evident in the scientific community of today is they, they say that science is really not a discipline, and, or it is a discipline defined, its definition is that which concerns only the natural. Most scientists today, when they look in the laboratory or they study nature, they don't see anything supernatural or God-glorifying about it at all. This is because they are blind to the obvious facts. They don't realize that the operations within the cells of the human body clothe themselves with joy and offer praise to God when the synthesis of proteins that are involved with DNA resequencing allow the vital systems of our body to sustain life and scientists are running to catch up with the intricate design of the human body, learning every step of the way, teaching God nothing, only sitting as a pupil under His sovereignty revealed in creation and adding to their knowledge something else that He already decreed already sustained, already planned, and is already in operation. The scientist of all people ought to read Psalm 65 and realize 
Through the microscope or the telescope, he is viewing a compendium of the praiseworthy acts of God. Science and nature are not some realm divorced of the supernatural. They're not some category where we recognize impersonal laws that just developed by themselves as a matter of nothing more than time, chance, and, and energy. No, that's impossible. It's a foolish notion. These things exist, coexist in symbiotic ways because there is a designer. Because God Himself has set these systems in motion. And by them He brings praise and glory to Himself. God is not just some abstract spiritual idea that might exist in another category, but is divorced from science and nature. No, in fact, it is because of Him that nature exists at all. And because of Him, we recognize that nature itself, whether it's morning and evening, the predictable seasons and plans and, and uh, circumnavigation that the planets follow around the uh, objects that they orbit or the pastures in the wilderness that overflow and gird themselves with joy, the meadows and the great fruitful plains that deck themselves with flocks, all of these are worshiping the Lord. Again, it is because the salvation of our God's, our God which satisfies the great needs of the heart, that our Lord is worthy of praise. And it is because of the great fields which abound with grain unto the sustenance of the peoples of the earth that God is worthy of praise. David has reached into every realm, at least by major categories, to show us that praise is due to God in Zion, and to Him shall vows be performed. He is the one who has accomplished all these things. He hears prayer to Him, shall all flesh come. Though our sin prevails against us, He supplies atonement. This is a reality not just for us, but for the ends of the earth and the farthest seas which themselves give Him glory as He demonstrates His authority over them by stilling their ways and by declaring to the peoples awesome signs, mighty glorious evidences of His power this world over and all through history. This praiseworthy casebook is just a, just a touch, just an, a, a, a brief sampling in Psalm 65 of reasons why God is worthy of praise, and even here we find them to be overwhelming. Saints, as we gather in this place next week, as we offer even now our meditations to the Lord for His great deeds, as we set our mind to prayer and thankfulness tonight before a meal, as we open the Scriptures and share thoughts of our Lord with our children in devotions, family worship, remember the praiseworthy acts of God. And let that inform your heart and attitude as you join with the fields, creations, stars, and every redeemed soul saying, Praise you, Lord. You are worthy, O God in Zion. And to you I will perform my vows because you alone are worthy of my praise. Let us close in prayer. O Father, we thank you for your greatness, your power, your majesty, your glory. We thank you that you have revealed these through creation and in your scriptures. We pray that our hearts, Lord, would realize the power of your greatness and the glory that you deserve, and that our lips would overflow, therefore, 
uh, in praise and that our hearts would move our will to, to uh, decisions and actions and meditations and purpose, Lord Jesus, and obedience that would bring glory to your holy name. Bless us unto these ends, Lord, that we may join with all creation in the great symphony of worship unto you. And I pray, Lord, that with each passing day, you would add to our consciousness even more reasons to give you thanks. We praise you and worship you this morning for saving us, and we thank you for this day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad. In your holy name we pray. Amen.